You do have to pick them up at the end, though. Um, if you're unfamiliar with uh, the Bible, there should be one underneath the, the seat in front of you that is uh, this bluish color, light blue. Looks like this, and we are on page 471 in those Bibles. That's 471, and we're in the book of Matthew. The big number is the chapter, and the small number or the verses will be in 18 through 25 today. This text covers the uh, conception of Jesus all the way through the birth of Jesus. And this morning, as we look at this very famous passage of Scripture, we'll see that both the circumstances of Jesus' birth and the name given to Him describe for us or contain within them the reason why Jesus came. This great passage calls us thereby to believe in Jesus. And by implication, the text also admonishes or encourages us to have bold, simple, courageous faith like Joseph and Mary did. If you are with us this morning and you're undecided about Jesus, I want to encourage you to listen for the way in which this passage describes Jesus. Now, it's going to contain some things that are very challenging to believe. And yet, would you try this morning to suspend judgment and simply consider the implications of this text if it were in fact true? If you are a Christian, may you who have already come to know Jesus be encouraged this morning strengthened, emboldened by the faith that you already have. By far, our most beautiful reader is going to come for us now. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you. One of the things that's very clear in our passage this morning is that this was a problematic pregnancy. You see, the words, I'm pregnant, are sometimes heard as the very best news, sometimes heard as the very worst news. Now, to be clear, a, a baby is always a gift to be treasured and nurtured and prayed for and cultivated toward becoming a follower of God. But not every person who becomes 
pregnant or hears of a conception responds in that way. Joseph included. You see, Joseph was, in fact, devastated when he heard the news that Mary was pregnant. The timing, quite literally, could not have been worse. If you look at verse 18, it uses another one of those words that is uncommon for us today. That word is the word betrothed. Verse 18 says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Betrothal is no longer a a cultural practice that we follow. Uh, The closest cultural norm that we would have today to betrothal is what we would call engagement. Engagement essentially means a man has asked a woman to marry him. She has shockingly said yes, and they have usually set a date ahead and are working hard toward the details of their wedding. So in the future, they will become husband and wife. Betrothal in the first century was that, but it was far more. You see, engagement is something of of a private commitment. If that fiancé were to say, I've changed my mind, all that must happen is simply removal of the ring and a walking away. But betrothal was different. In the first century, betrothal was a commitment that was not only privately made, but it was also legally binding. This was a year-long commitment made between a man and a woman in which the man would have left home. He would prepare the new home. I'm smelling something wonderful. Do you smell that or is it just wafting this way? Last gathering, it was some cream cheese thing. Did you have one of those? Or should I say, did you have six of those? And now it's something else. This is not fair. It is international lunch, and they're making Persian food. All right. Hansley, does that make you want to whistle? (laughs) Betrothal. I digress, sorry. In... In betrothal, the man would be readying the home, and the woman would be still living with mom and dad, and yet they would publicly be already referred to as husband and wife. And the express purpose of this time period was for the two to publicly be demonstrating commitment, purity, fidelity. To each other. And it was in this exact time of testing and preparation that Mary got the news. You have conceived. And Joseph got the news. I'm pregnant. Now put yourself in his shoes for a minute, if you would. Guys, this would have been the most terrible scandal. Why? Well, hopefully mom or dad had the birds and bees conversation with you. You see, people don't get pregnant alone. And yet, Mary, 
who had never been with a man, found herself miraculously pregnant. Joseph would have undoubtedly assumed that Mary had been unfaithful to him, thereby calling into question the entire relationship. Now, all this talk of betrothal may sound uh, prudish or unconventional or ridiculous to you. And frankly, I think our intent uh, when we hear things like this would just be to sort of write them off as the irrelevant stuff of a bygone era. And while it's certainly not the main point of this passage to encourage us about the way in which we should make marriage commitments, nonetheless, I think we'd be remiss not to just for a moment push pause and ask, is there anything we can, in fact, learn from the way they did this? from the way a commitment was demonstrated before the couple came together. Friends, you may not recognize this, but in the last year that we have census data, 2016, in the United States of America, 40% of all babies were born in homes to unwed mothers. That means four, for those of you who are not good at math like me. It means four. That's almost five. Four out of every ten babies is born most likely without a dad. Now, I think single women are truly some of the most heroic people in our culture. Many of you, as I look around the room and know your stories know that you were raised by a mom. Many of you don't know your dad. I pray that we would be a, a church in which little boys and little girls that have no dad find lots and lots of godly uncles and big brothers. From the biblical directive of a man and a woman to not have sex until they're married and then to not have sex until they do so with the awareness that despite whatever precautions you take, you may in fact get pregnant. And the joy of intimacy comes with it the responsibility of pregnancy. And the responsibility of pregnancy comes with it the honor of parenting. The heartache caused by sex outside of marriage and the impact upon people of being raised without a dad is without question significant. Now certainly we don't have to follow the exact strategies used by Mary and Joseph and all the other Jews of the first century. These are 2,000-year-old cultural practices. Very likely, Mary and Joseph's dads arranged their marriage. Now, I like my dad, but I would not have wanted him to be picking for me. And yet, wouldn't we at the same time do well to simply admit our modern practices are not 
working. Every year that number is inching higher. 40%, no doubt, will become 50 or maybe even higher. The church could do a much better job of calling each other to holiness and commitment, not by gritting our teeth, not by pretending there's no struggle for sexual purity, but by honesty, by transparency, by gospel reliance and encouragement to one another. So if you're single, I would encourage you to invite older couples into your life. And if you're 20, 30 is in fact older. I'm learning this more and more. But find people older than you. They have lived longer. They have made more mistakes. They have gained wisdom through the life they have lived. Invite them into your life for counsel, for accountability, for support. And if you are married, recognize, friends, this church family is full of single adults. That is by far the highest demographic of people who join Church on Mill. And friends, many of these people are young, and they would love many of them to be married someday. Would you consider ways in which you can simply prepare a little more food when you make dinner and have an open seat? Ways in which your laundry machine could be used a little more frequently to bless another. Ways in which the things you've learned by hardship could in fact be shared verbally. Perhaps sparing somebody else some of the dumb things you've done. Friends, this is God's idea for the church that younger Christians would be benefited by older. That older would keep from becoming crotchety by being friends with younger. Be intentional about pursuing people not like you. Don't make the mistake of hanging around only folks who look like you, talk like you, are in the same demographic as you. There's tremendous benefit to be gleaned from the diversity of the body of Christ. And this whole area of romantic relationships is, in many ways, one that is perhaps only as difficult, only um, second in difficulty to that of money, to bring into the light and speak to one another with gospel intentionality. We have much to learn from each other. So Mary... Mary had not had sex, and yet Mary was pregnant. Now, believe it or not, the authors of the Bible were not idiots. They understood how things worked. You've heard that excuse uh, of a student to their teacher, the dog ate my homework. Well, this time, the excuse was actually true. Mary was still a virgin. Now, why does all this matter? Well, at one level, we'd have to say it, it matters because this is part of historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity. And friends, there are times in which we as Christians must submit ourselves to things 
that we will never experience, and yet we can't discount them simply because we haven't seen it ourselves or because it's outside the norm. And yet, perhaps even more than just that, this is significant because it was essential that Jesus come as both God and man. Now, hang that up mentally on the shelf, and we'll come back to it in a few minutes. Look at verse 19, would you? You'll see that it says Matthew is careful to inform us that Joseph was a just man. What does that mean? Well, it means that Joseph loved God. It means that Joseph was faithful to God. It means that Joseph was concerned that his life be patterned after the Word of God. It means that because he loved God, he wanted to do what was right and true. Men, we would do well to learn from Joseph. There's a tremendous need for guys like Joseph. Men who, above all, aim to love God and honor Him. Submit themselves to God's Word. We are awash. Culturally, and many times even in the church, with men who are weak, with men who choose self over Savior. Joseph was not a man like that. Because Joseph was just, he planned to end this betrothal. He recognized that Mary very likely had been, in fact, unfaithful to him. And thereby, he was to end the relationship. She had in his mind, sinned against him in the most personal, offensive way by having sex with another man. And so, maybe as Joseph heard this news from Mary, he found himself at home that night tossing and turning in bed. You had one of those experiences? You got news that so deeply rattled you to your core that despite tears, despite physical and emotional, even spiritual exhaustion, you cannot sleep. We don't know this, but perhaps that went on not for one night, two nights, three nights. I imagine this was a very, very difficult experience for Joseph. Joseph was weighing out two things. How do I walk away from Mary? And yet, how do I not become party to her sin? Joseph's decision was that he would end the relationship. And then he went to bed, maybe to sleep well for the first night and several nights. And as he lay in bed, something incredibly odd happened. The text tells us that not only was there a problem pregnancy, but as Joseph slept, there was an angelic announcement that God, in a way that he is certainly free to do, but also is not common, God sent an angel to give Joseph a message. If you glance down at your Bibles, we won't read it again for time's sake, but in verses 20 and 21, we see the message of the angel. If I could summarize it for you, the, the angel told Joseph to abandon his fears by becoming Mary's husband. He said, don't leave her. Stay with her. Don't give over to fear. And then the angel 
declared that what Mary, in fact, had told him was actually true. That this was an incredibly special child given to Mary and that she had not been, in fact, unfaithful. That this baby would be unlike any other. Now, all of you know that every parent thinks their kid is the best. But in Mary's case, it was actually true. See, this wasn't just every kid gets a trophy, but that Jesus is a child unlike any other child who will ever be born. Joseph, when he woke from that dream, faced a fork in the road. I wonder how many of us in the room this morning listening to this sermon are at a fork in the road. You've got some major decision you need to make. In one direction, there's a giving yourself over to fear, doing what you want, doing, frankly, what seems natural, appropriate. And yet, on the other hand, there is some sense of the direction of God. Friends, may Joseph be an encouragement to us because as Joseph considered that fork, he went the right way. He, he went the way of following God. And he did so knowing what it would cost him. Because if Joseph stayed with Mary, then all the mocking and the humor and the coarse jokes and the shame that belonged to Mary as an unwed pregnant woman would be taken on by Joseph. Because everybody would assume that this, in fact, was Joseph's child. Certainly, we don't face that specific circumstance. And yet, how often in the recent days or months have we faced decisions in which we could choose fear or faith? Brothers, how many times have we known the right thing to do and relied on God's strength to help us actually do it? Sisters, how many times when we're You've been given the option of fear or faith. Have you chosen a word-filled, spirit-led reliance on God? This is what Joseph and Mary call us to. And imagine the impact we could make in Tempe if we were people like them. People who are willing to accept whatever the world might say as we submit ourselves to God. Now, the text says that Joseph followed the commandment of God, that he changed his mind, that he stuck with Mary, that he did not, in fact, end the relationship, and that they went ahead with marriage. And so we have in this short passage, we have an undesired, unplanned problem pregnancy. But we have an angelic announcement that calmed Mary and Joseph's fears. And this, of course, led to a one-of-a-kind kid. The baby born to Mary and adopted by Joseph would be utterly unique. Now, if you're taking notes and you want to capture the main idea of this text, I tried to put it this way. 
Jesus, the God-man, born to the Virgin Mary, came in order to save his people from their sins. That's Jesus, the God-man, born to the Virgin Mary, came in order to save his people from their sins. Now, of course, the strangest part of that sentence is the word, the hyphenated word, God-man. God-man. So I want to spend our remaining few minutes together thinking about that idea. Friends, the passage is clear. And not only this one passage, although as though it's some isolated instance, but the whole Bible is clear that Jesus is simultaneously God and man. Frankly, if you're visiting with us, you're new to Christianity, or perhaps even you're a new Christian, that may be exceedingly difficult to believe. I would, in fact, confess to you that for a very, very long time, I found it to be absurd. How can an eternal, all-powerful, sovereign God be put in one of these? And yet, that is, in fact, what the Scriptures say. First, let's think about Jesus as God passage tells us that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he had no earthly father, and that for all time, God has been relating to God the Father and God the Spirit as God the Son. And just to demonstrate for you, it's not simply Matthew saying this, and there's four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were all written by contemporaries of Jesus, all written within the lifetime of people who saw and knew Jesus. One of these other writers, a man named John, said, in the beginning was the Word. It's a way of talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John starts his gospel by saying, for all time Jesus has been God. But back in Matthew, verse 23, you'll see that Jesus' work is summarized in the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Friends, if you were to leave this morning when we're finished and try to walk off those six pastry things you ate, you would find several different gathering places of worship. If you went north and a little east, Again, within walking distance, you would find a mosque. And in that mosque, you would not hear, Jesus is God. If you went much closer, in fact, just two blocks directly north, you would come to a Jewish gathering center for students. You would, in fact, not hear there, Jesus is God. If You went east of here over to the other side of the ASU campus, you'd find a Mormon stake. You would not hear there, Jesus is God. If you went a little bit further to the southeast corner of rural in Apache, you'd find a Baha'i center where you would not hear that Jesus came 
utterly unique, unlike anyone else, has the full and final revelation of God. Friends, literally surrounding us. Not merely from the secular world, but from the religious world. We are told that Jesus is not God. And so what are we to do with this? Well, certainly we ought to, of all people, be kind and generous and hospitable and gracious to those who would disagree. And certainly empathetic about how it would be difficult to believe that God could take on flesh. And yet at the end of the day, this is part of what makes Christianity Christianity. If Jesus is not God, then you ought not believe in Him. And so we submit ourselves to the Word of God, for it is God speaking even now. If you'd like to talk with somebody more about that, we'd love to do that. This is a place where it is totally fine to say that's ridiculous, but would you try to convince me? We want to be a people among whom we can have honest discussion. The text says quite clearly Jesus is God. And yet it tells us also that Jesus is man. It tells us that Jesus was born as an infant baby to Mary. Friends, that means Jesus cried. Jesus nursed. Jesus needed diapers. Jesus slept. Jesus exhausted his mother. Jesus made Joseph walk around bouncing him looking ridiculous. Jesus is fully human. John, in that same chapter we heard, John chapter 1, verse 1, says in verse 14, and the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you were with us last week, you may remember that we said Jesus left the glories of heaven for the groanings of earth. This is by far the most miraculous thing in the Bible, that God chose to self-limit by becoming one of us. The Creator entered His creation. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with Theologians call this reality the incarnation, the indwelling of God among men. When I was a kid, there was a very popular game, Trivial Pursuit. There's probably a few in the room that know of that game. If you want a great fact that will impress everyone when you play Trivial Pursuit, theologians also call this the hypostatic union. Turn, that, turn to your neighbor and say, hypostatic Union. Now, that means that in one being, there is 100% God, 100% man. That Jesus remained fully God and yet became fully man. That Jesus is God in flesh. Now, that might sound like 
unimportant, academic, useless, only good for trivial pursuit kind of thing. However, spare me just a few more minutes, would you please? I want to try to show you why this is immensely practical. Friends, to accomplish God's plan of salvation, Jesus had to be God in man. It was an absolute necessity. Jesus, his name means God saves. Jesus came to rescue his people from their sin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, put it this way. She, that's Mary, will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Friends, if Jesus was to be able to effectively accomplish his mission, he had to be a human being. It was an absolute necessity. Jesus had to get tired. Jesus had to get hungry. Jesus had to cry. Jesus had to get angry at injustice. Jesus had to experience rejection. Jesus had to experience the whole range of human emotions. Jesus had to do all of that because it was necessary in order for him to fulfill the law. In other words, Jesus had to live the life you and I are supposed to have lived. What we see in Jesus is not something less than human. What we see in Jesus is, in fact, the most human, human being who has ever lived. Friends, in one way, you can think of sin as a bit of a chipping away each time at true humanity. When you and I harm each other, we are not acting as humans. That old uh, saying, that excuse, I'm just like this, I'm just human, that is in fact not true. Because humans were not designed by God to be cruel, to be selfish, to be lustful, be sinfully angry. We were designed by God to know Him, to be in fellowship with Him, and to enjoy one another. And so sin, in fact, is a chipping away at our humanity. Jesus came in order to be the most human human being, and yet to do so in such a way that He never failed to obey God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says it this way, For we don't have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friend, you don't have in Jesus one who is far off and aloof. You don't have one who only through book knowledge knows the hurts and hardship of being human. Friend, you have in Jesus one who knows exactly how you feel. For he has faced everything, every kind of thing you have faced and yet has done so without running from his Father. That makes Jesus our great and sympathetic comforter. So he had to be human. And yet, 
Jesus in order to accomplish the rescue of people, bringing them back to God, also had to be God. Because only God could live in the flesh on earth and show us exactly who God is. Friend, if you are a Christian and you spend time frequently with non-Christians, talking to them about faith, what you'll find is that very often people have an exceedingly difficult time even thinking about God. Now, it's not that most people we interact with are atheists. They are, they are not. Most people we interact with believe in some kind of spiritual higher power. And yet, how do we conceive of a God we can't see? God the Father is a spirit. He does not have a body. And none of us have ever seen him. He claims to be everywhere and yet is not visible with the human eye. How can that be? How can we know the Father? Well, this is where the news of Jesus Christ becomes amazingly wonderful news. Because, friends, if you want to see who the Father is, you need look no further than Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all paint for us the perfect picture of who God is. Because in Jesus, we are able to see the exact representation of the Father. If the Father feels unfamiliar, it is because you are not availing yourself of the information graciously given to you. Hebrews chapter 1 makes this point exactly. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But then in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, who upholds the universe by the power of His Word. Friend, do you want to know God? I hope so, for that is why you are taking another breath. You exist for Him. Do you want to know Him? Not merely as someone telling you about Him and you amassing concepts, a knowledge about, but a personal and intimate, a warm knowledge of Dad. If so, then read your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they show you who God is. Jesus is both God and man. And it's worth repeating one more time, Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're undecided about Jesus, hear the invitation given to you. Jesus would invite you to turn from a life without God, to turn from a life in which you have sought to rule and reign and, like everybody else, have failed, a life in which the very essence of why you exist has yet to be felt. 
Friends, if you would this morning turn from that life and simply with childlike trust say, I believe. I believe what I've heard about Jesus. Then you will, in fact, have your sin saved. You will join with hundreds in this church who have already experienced that. There is, in fact, forgiveness for you. If you're not yet ready to make that decision, I want to encourage you to visit afterwards with somebody who brought you or with a friend who you know is a Christian. Or quite literally, you can simply stop one of us and say, hey, do you believe this stuff? Would you tell me more? We would love to do that. Now, to those of you who are decided, who have, in fact, trusted Christ, I think this passage this morning would do many things for us. Perhaps one of those is, I wonder who among us who trust Jesus have made a very big moral blunder. you done something that you would do anything to get back? Friend, whether that was seven hours ago or seven years ago, the message of this text is that there is forgiveness for you. That that, even that sin is forgiven by this Savior. Jesus, in fact, died for you, rose again for you, has been loving you for all time with full knowledge of what you would do. May you be encouraged this morning by the forgiveness that's offered in Christ by turning to Him yet again. Because it's not only those of us in the room who have yet to trust Christ that need Christ, it's us too. And maybe there's one or two of us who don't have a big moral blunder coming to mind. If we're thinking rightly, we'll recognize we have lots of little ones. And certainly we need this forgiveness as well. Jesus is the God-man who delivered and is still delivering us that we might know the Father. Friends, this is what Christians have always believed, that the grace of God is sufficient for the people of God to fully and finally be His and to be protected by His power. So may we bless each other with gospel news. And may this text encourage us fresh and new. This idea of Jesus in closing being both God and man was the central doctrinal issue for the first couple of hundred years after Jesus ascended, the church really grappled with. They, leaders at various points, pastors, hundreds of them got together for months at a time to study their New Testament and grapple with how do we understand the way in which these two ideas appeared together. We know the outcome of their findings It's written in the historic creeds of Christianity. 
One of those, one of the very earliest, is called the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't written by the apostles, but it was written by the next several generations of leaders. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it represents their teachings, the apostles' teaching. And it was known as the church, the, the creed of the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church didn't exist. But Catholic meaning universal, that all churches everywhere believe this truth about Jesus. And I wonder by way of conclusion today, if those of you here who believe in Christ, trust the biblical revelation of Jesus, if you'd read this with me aloud as a way of reaffirming your love for and commitment to our God. If you don't believe it, feel free to just listen. If you want to learn more, again, we'd love to share with you. Will you read with me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, this is our confession. We believe this not because rationally we can fully and finally and sort of test tube experimentally prove it. We believe it because it's what your scriptures say. We believe it because you have, in fact, shown yourself in creation, in common grace, and fully and finally in Christ. We believe it because you've changed us. We pray that in the coming days we would live like we believe it. Not by trying harder, but by trusting more. And we pray that we, Father, this week would be a people who, as we scatter into Tempe, would be people full of the light of Christ because we know personally what it means to be forgiven and saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.